The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Can you teach me how to shave? He said, sure. And so he, uh, one morning, I remember going into my parents' restroom in front of the mirror, and my mom loves to tell this story. My dad puts the shaving cream down in front of me, and he says, put this on your face. And so he leaves the room to go do something. I don't know. I get this shaving cream. I put it on my hand and I put it on my face. And as my mother would tell it, my dad comes back into the restroom and says, not on your forehead. (laughs) And I'm sure I did it to be funny. At least I hope. Um, I don't remember it that much, but my mom loves to retell that story. You know, the journey into manhood can be a really confusing journey. What's even more confusing is knowing what a man exactly is. And so what would you say? When does a boy become a man? Is it when he has the opportunity to grow facial hair? Is that what makes him a man? Is it when he can hit a curveball? When he can vote? When he can fight in a war? Is it when he's married and has kids or when he has a stable income? When does a boy become a man? Darren Patrick, a pastor in St. Louis, wrote a book about church planting, and he has three sections. The first section is about the man. The second is about the message. And the third is about the mission. And in the very first part, when he's talking about the man and church planting, he describes an epidemic of a lack of manhood in America. And he says this, I'll read it to you. It's a little bit long, but I think it's really helpful in hearing why this is such an important topic. He says this, he says, we live in a world full of males who have prolonged their adolescence. There are neither boys nor men. They live suspended as it were between childhood and adulthood, between growing up and being grownups. Let's call this kind of male ban a hybrid of both boy and man. And so you see the definition, boy, ban, a male suspended between boyhood and manhood. Ban is juvenile because there has been an entire niche created for him to live in the lust of youth. The accompanying culture not only tolerates this behavior, but encourages it and endorses it. Consider movies like Wedding Crashers and things of that sort. This kind of male is everywhere, including in the church. Ban is a frightening reality in the church, but he is the best thing that ever happened to video games or adult entertainment. Our society is overrun with males who are not men. Assuming the responsibilities of husband and father makes a boy into a man, but Ban doesn't like responsibility. So he extends his adolescence and sets his focus squarely and supremely on himself. And then I'll read this and it's on the screen as well. The lack of godly men in our world is now a cultural crisis. We're not going to solve the problem by ignoring Ban and hoping that he eventually grows up. We're not going to solve the problem by encouraging women to take up the slack. We might solve the problem by modeling biblical manhood and calling adult boys to forsake their youthful lusts and become the men that God is calling them to be in the context of the local church. You know, when we think of what it means to be a man today, certain people come to mind. Maybe it is the Lone Ranger 
or uh, Chuck Norris or people of that type, people who are big and strong and independent and ferocious. But the most manly man to ever live on the face of the earth is Jesus Christ. He is the most godly man because he was God in the flesh. And so if we're looking for what it means to become a man and what it means to be a man, we need to look to Jesus Christ and we need to look to those men who look to Jesus Christ on what it means to be a man. Today, we're going to do that. If you would, please open up to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be covering verses 12 through 30. It's page 981 in the Red Bible, page 1453 in the children's Bible. We're going to be looking at three men today who look to Jesus as to what it meant to be a man. We're going to look at Paul, we're going to look at Timothy, and we're going to look at Epaphroditus. And as we study their lives, we're going to see that all these men were men because they looked to the ultimate man, Jesus Christ. Now, as we dig into this passage, it is obviously applicable to boys. Boys that are looking someday to become men. It's also applicable to bands. Males that are stuck between adolescence and manhood. But it's also applicable to parents and to grandparents who seek to raise their children, raise their boys to become men. And matter of fact, Timothy, one of the men in this passage, was raised by his mother and by his grandmother to become a man of God. But this is also applicable to single women. And the reason why this is applicable to you is because you need to know how to identify a godly man. Because if you marry a ban, then you'll only become his mother. But if you marry a man, then he will lead you to become the godly woman that God has called you to be. And so we're going to look at this passage today, and it applies to all of us in one way, shape, or form. It is a large portion of Scripture, and so what I like to do when we have this big of a portion of Scripture is kind of talk through it a little bit, speak, talk through a little bit, speak, talk through a little bit, speak. And so before we dig into God's Word, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for these men that we get to look to today, men who looked to you, men who show us what manhood really is. Lord God, I confess that even as I look at these descriptions, I can understand areas where I fall short. And there are other areas where I give praise, where I see your grace working in me and transforming me from a boy into a man. And so, Lord God, pray that as we look at this passage today, that we would be honest with ourselves and that we would seek to become the men that you have called us to be. And we would be the women who raise men and marry men that lead your church. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what is a man? What makes a boy into a man? Well, there are many things we will see in this passage, but there are three things we will focus on today. A manly man, a godly man invests spiritually. A godly man serves selflessly and a godly man persists sacrificially. Those are the three things we'll look at today from the lives of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. First, let's look and see a godly man invest spiritually. I won't spend a lot of time on verses 12 through 16 because this was the passage that we preached on last week, but it ties in well with today's sermon because we see that a godly man invests spiritually, and a godly man starts by investing spiritually in himself. Again, verse 12, read along with me. Keep your Bibles open if you would. Verse 12, 
Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Again, last week we discussed this in depth, and what we saw is that we are called to work out our salvation. That we are to have a strenuous, continuous effort in pursuing the likeness of Christ. And that we do not do this on our own, but that it is God who works in us. We also see that manly men, godly men, don't grumble. That we stop grumbling. That we trust that God's plan is being worked out for his good pleasure. And we trust in his sovereign plan over our life. And we also saw... That as men of God, we are called to hold fast to the word of life, to the scriptures, to saturate ourselves in God's word, to unreservedly stand upon it and stand for it wherever we go. Now, the point I want to make before we move forward, that is very important, is that godly manhood starts with investing spiritually in yourself. Godly manhood starts with investing spiritually in yourself. I know this sounds very selfish, but it's actually a very selfless thing to do. Well, or maybe it's selfish, but it's a good selfish. That our godly character starts with investing spiritually in ourselves. You know, it's kind of like on the airplanes. When the flight attendant gets on the intercom system, and he or she will say, you know, in the case of loss of cabin pressure, Yellow oxygen mass will deploy from the ceiling and yada, yada, yada. And then at the end, they say, please make sure to secure your own mask before assisting others. The thought process is if you, your brain is deprived of oxygen, if you are panicking and flipping out, you won't be a help to anyone. And so secure your own mask first before you help securing the mask of others. For us, Godly manhood starts with investing spiritually in yourself, taking the time out of the day to do this, to get into God's word, to pray, to go on retreats, to get connected to Bible studies, to be in places where you can grow spiritually closer to God. And so it starts with investing spiritually in ourselves, but it can never stop there. Godly manhood not only, not only, it depends on us investing spiritually in ourselves, but also spiritually investing in others. Verse 16, Paul continues on. He says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I laughed when I read this verse because just a few weeks ago, I speak against the evil of pride, right? And that we need to be humble. And what's so interesting is a couple of verses ago in the early part of Philippians chapter two, pride is Pride is a vice, but here it is a virtue. Because Paul is not seeking to be prideful in himself. He's not seeking to exalt himself, but he's seeking to exalt Christ and the people of Philippi. And his hope and his dream is that his labor for them, his ministry to them has not been in vain, but that on the day of Christ that they will come and they will rejoice in Christ and they will have been faithful to Christ. Now, it's important to see in this verse That Paul calls ministry labor. He calls it running. It is hard work to minister 
to other people. To spiritually invest other people takes sacrifice. It takes time. It takes energy. But because our goal is to exalt Christ, it is worth the sacrifice. The sacrifice is substantial and it is valuable. It is an offering. It is a sacrifice to God that those that we invest in spiritually might grow in their relationship with the Lord and glorify him. Verse 17, he continues. He says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, talking about his imprisonment, potential death, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. We are called to make a spiritual investment in those around us. And whatever sacrifice it might take, we are to do it with rejoicing. And so let me ask, where are you making a spiritual investment? And while this is Focused on men, it certainly applies to all of us. Where are you investing spiritually in other people? If you are a father, hopefully you are investing spiritually in your kids. Praying with them and for them. Opening up God's word to them. Talking to them about spiritual things. If you're a husband, hopefully you are doing this with your wife. You're investing in her spiritually. Making sure she is at places where she can grow in a relationship with the Lord. Talking to her about God. Praying with her and for her. But this is not excluded to fathers and it is not excluded to dads because none of those would pertain to Jesus, nor would they pertain to the apostle Paul. Manhood is not dependent on having a family or being married. We are called to invest spiritually on others, no matter what our marital status or family status is. It starts in the home, but it can go outward as we are called to invest in other people. And so there are other folks that are just a step behind you in their spiritual journey that you can reach out to, that you can pour into, that you can invest in. And so we see biblical manhood, godly manhood calls us to spiritually invest in ourselves, but also to invest in others. That is the first characteristic of a godly man. The second is that a godly man serves selflessly. Again, this characteristic applies to all three men that we'll be studying today, but we'll be looking at it specifically in the life of Timothy. Verse 19, Paul says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interest and not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Timothy was a young minister. He was with the apostle Paul when he when Paul planted the church of Philippi, as we read back in Acts chapter 16. And he had continued in ministry with Paul, and he had proven his worth. And the worth that Paul recommends to them, the letter of recommendation that Paul sends on behalf of Timothy, is that Timothy is a man who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. He will be, future tense, when he gets there, he will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And Paul is certain of this because Timothy has proven this one thing. That he is more interested in the interests of Christ 
than in his own interests. It says here that Timothy seeks his own. He does not seek his own interests, but those of Jesus Christ. In Paul's mind, because Timothy genuinely looks to the interests of Jesus above his own, this means that Timothy will indeed genuinely be concerned for their welfare. There is an important lesson for us here in these verses, in verse 20 and 21, that we cannot be committed to the interests of Christ and at the same time being different towards Christ's church. We cannot be committed to the interests of Jesus Christ and at the same time be disinterested in our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are called by God to seek to selflessly serve the people of God. This is what Jesus emphasizes time and time again in his teaching. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus, the most godly man, the most manly man to ever live, did not come to be served as he deserved, but he came to serve broken, wretched, difficult, sinful people. And we are called to follow the way of our master. That's why back in Earlier in Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Men are called to serve sacrificially, to serve selflessly. There's a story of a man who went off to war, and, um, and he was done with his tour And he was coming home and he was to be picked up at a train station. And his mother, for whatever reason, was homebound, was unable to go pick him up at the train station. And so she had a man that was going to go and pick up her son at the train station for her. And so the man asks the woman, he says, how will I know that it's your son? What will indicate to me that this is your son? And she said to him, look for the man helping someone else. That will be my son. And so the man goes to the train station. And sure enough, there's a man in uniform helping an elderly woman. And sure enough, this is the woman's son. How amazing is it that someone could describe you by your character of selflessly serving others? How will I know who it is? He is the one that is selflessly serving others. Is this how you are characterized in your life? As a selfless servant of all. You see, proof of our maturity, of our faith in Christ, and of our manlyhood is not how emotional we get in the worship service or how much we read the Bible and know of the Bible. What will prove our maturity in Christ is how we selflessly love other people. We are told in the scripture that they will know us by our love. People know you by what you love. If you love hunting, they know you as a hunter. If, they, if you love shopping, they know you as a shopper. But if you love people, they know you as a Christian, as one who selflessly serves others. And so godly men are men who invest spiritually in themselves and in others. They, they serve selflessly those that are around them. And finally, they persist 
sacrificially. Again, this attribute is in all of the men that we're looking at today, but we're going to look at it in the life of Epaphroditus. Verse 25. Paul says, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. As we mentioned, Paul had planted a church in Philippi. He was close with the people there. He had actually gone back and visited at least on one or two occasions. And so he had an intimate relationship with his people. Paul had moved on, and he was now in Rome trying to plant a church there when he was put in prison on death row. And the Philippian church is concerned, and so they gather gifts together, and they send it with Epaphroditus to Paul. Now, this is no small task. It would have been 600 miles from Philippi to Rome. It would have been like from Milwaukee to Atlanta. That's about the distance that it would have been. And we think of that, and we think, boy, that would be a long drive. It is an even longer walk. It would have taken him at least six weeks to get from Philippi to Rome. And at least six weeks to get back. And so Epaphroditus decides that he's going to give up at least three months of his life, probably more, to go and take these gifts and to support Paul. Now, what is so interesting about this, which you kind of don't see in the passage, but there is a good reason to believe that Epaphroditus got sick along his journey towards Rome. Because of the way that the Philippians had heard that he was sick and he heard back that that they were worried about his sickness, that it probably happened in transit in which another person brought it back. And so most likely Epaphroditus was sick in his journey towards Rome. And what is amazing here is because of his persistent determination and sacrifice to carry out what he had committed to do, he continued on to Rome, even though it potentially meant his own death. Epaphroditus didn't flake out on his responsibility. He didn't quit when the ministry got difficult and inconvenient. His yes was yes, and his no was no. When I was in college, I was a part of this ministry called Young Life, and we had about 15 to 20 college students, and we would go into this school several times a week to build relationships with kids that we might share Christ with them. These leaders, they would come to a, a weekly leaders meeting, and then we had we would go to two lunches a week or two events at school a week, and there was also a club at night. And so it was a pretty involved leadership that they were committing to. Well, I remember one time throughout the semester, we were in my living room, and we were in a time of prayer, and I just was curious. And so I asked a question. While all their heads were bowed down, no one was looking up, I asked a question. I said, raise your hand. If you have not seriously considered quitting Young Life this year, raise your hand if you have not seriously considered quitting the ministry this year. And out of the 15 to 20 students were there, only one raised their hand. You see, the reality is this, is that ministry is difficult. There will be times when you are investing in others that you will want to quit. If you are investing in your children and you are reading the Bible and they are screaming and crying, you are tended to say, what is the point of doing this, right? If you're investing in a person 
And you show up for coffee and they text you five minutes late and say, oh, sorry, I can't make it today. I'm not feeling well. You're thinking, what is the point? Why should I do this? Ministry is difficult. Ministry is hard. Ministry is for men and for godly women. And we are called to persist sacrificially. Now, I'm not saying there are not times to step down. But what I am saying is that we are called to fulfill the commitments that we have made without grumbling, without complaining, even with great sacrifice to ourself. The passage continues. Verse 28, Paul says, I am the more eager to send him Epaphroditus, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul encourages them. He commands them to receive him in the Lord with all joy and to honor such men. You know, it's interesting because this month is Pastor Appreciation Month. But I actually want to change it to Small Group Leader Appreciation Month. You see, I get, I'm here because I'm called by God to be here, but I also get paid to minister the word, and so does Chad. But there are small group leaders in this church that get paid nothing to put in a lot of time and a lot of effort. They sacrifice their time to put together the studies. They sacrifice their time to clean the house and get everything organized. They even sacrifice money to provide a warm home and to provide Snacks and treats and drinks and things of that sort. And so I think it is an appropriate appeal to us to honor such men and to honor such women that lead our community groups, that lead our men's studies, that lead our women's studies, the ones that lead our youth groups. And so my encouragement to you during this Pastor Appreciation Month is to appreciate the small group leaders in this church who don't do it for money, but they do it at great sacrifice to themselves. Write them a letter of encouragement or give them a word of encouragement, a genuine encouragement. Don't lie to them. Don't make stuff up. But tell them genuinely how you appreciate them. Because these are men and women that are worthy of honor. And so it's October. The month is almost up. So I'd encourage you before the month is over to do that, to honor such men and receive them with joy. And so we see a manly man, a godly man is consistent and persistent and dedicated. He doesn't drop out when things get hard. He stays true to his commitment. He endures even when he doesn't feel like it. And we should honor such men and such women who do so. Let me end with this. When I was in college, I joined a fraternity house. And I remember during my uh, rush when I was seeing if I wanted to be a part of this fraternity house, there were these posters on the wall and it was this black and white picture of this guy kind of looked like a blues brother. And it just simply said below it, looking for a few good men, looking for a few good men. That was kind of the motto of the rush for this whole fraternity nationwide, looking for a few good men. Well, I started there in pledgeship and during pledgeship, we had to memorize this saying. And the saying had to relate to a, a certain badge that we would get once we became a member, once we became a brother in the fraternity. And it says this, that the badge shall not be worn by every man 
but only by him who is worthy to wear it. He must be a gentleman, a man of honor and courage, a man of zeal, yet humble, an intelligent man, a man of truth, one who tempers action with wisdom, and above all else, this is my fraternity, okay? And above all else, one who walks in the light of God. It's a pretty good say. There's not much wrong with that. But the hard part is living it out. Now, I'm guessing this isn't a stretch for you to imagine, but the ones that we looked up to as the man in the fraternity house didn't necessarily fit these qualifications. The one that we looked up to to the fraternity house and everyone thought they were the man didn't really fit God's definition of a man. We live in a culture of extended adolescence in which Committed investment in others is low. In which selfishness is high. And sacrifices to be avoided at all costs. I have three boys personally. And I want to teach them what it means to be a man. A godly man. The man that God calls them to be. And I want to show them what it means to be a man. And yet if I'm honest and I look at Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul. I realize that there is a delayed adolescence in my own life, a delayed manhood in my own life where I have failed to move forward. And my only hope of continuing a journey to full manhood, to being a godly man as he has called me to be, is the same hope that Paul had, the same hope that Timothy had, the same hope Epaphroditus had, and the same hope that my boys have. If they want to be a man, they have to look to the man. Jesus Christ, the man, Jesus, left the pleasure of heaven to come and invest spiritually in 12 silly disciples and a whole lot more people. The man, Jesus, served selflessly, washing the disciples' feet, humbling himself and becoming a servant to all. The man, Jesus, persisted sacrificially, carrying out his mission To save us by going to the cross. And so when we look and we wonder what does it mean to be a man. All we have to do is look to Christ. And what we see is that to be a man means to invest spiritually. To serve selflessly. And to persist sacrificially. And above all else. A godly man looks in humble reliance to the man. Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, the examples you have put before us in Scripture are wonderful. They're glorious, and yet they are daunting. Lord, we know that, that in ourselves we do not have the strength to become the men of God that you have called us to be. So, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work powerfully in us. Lord, I pray for our young boys in the church that they would grow into godly manhood, that as our culture is so confused about what it means to be a man, that they would be able to move forward knowing what it means to be a godly man and that your spirit would equip them to do so. Lord, I pray for the adult males of this church, wherever we are in that journey, God, we pray, Lord, that you would expose to us where our adolescence has been extended, where our manhood has been delayed, that you would convict us 
that we would repent and that you would transform us to be like Jesus. Lord, as we turn to your table, we're reminded of Christ's sacrifice, his selfless sacrifice, that he might save sinful men like us, Lord. God, we pray that as we come to your table, that that the, the wine and the bread would not just be common to us, that it would not just be something to drink and to eat, but it would be a reminder of your selfless sacrifice on our behalf. And that it would nourish us to live as the godly men and godly women that you have called us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.